traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. Throughout the history of fiction, there are examples of most unusual objects, objects that the protagonists find or are given, or in the case of the episode that we'll be discussing tonight, steal. These objects are sometimes hunted down, other times they just arrive in the hands of the character by chance. Often though, it seems that the object finds itself just where it needs to be to have some impact on the life of the person who finds it, for good or for bad, depending on who they are and how they use it. In the horror film Hellraiser, the character of Frank, a man who has experienced all of the pleasures and perversions that Earth has to offer, looks for a puzzle box that can take him beyond those pleasures and the pain that we know on Earth. The William Wymark Jacobs story, The Monkey's Paw, is maybe one of the most famous unusual object stories. It's the story of a couple who make three wishes on a mystical monkey's paw, and the wishes are granted, but the consequences of those wishes are quite horrific. Now the interesting thing about these most unusual objects is that if the character finds them in an antique shop or a junk shop or is given them by a shaman or buys it from a mysterious stranger, then we as the audience will usually accept that this object has some unusual power and we accept that unconditionally. We don't need to know where that power comes from. We accept that somewhere down the line it was created for some reason that we don't know. So this is probably why it's a very common storytelling trope. It frees up the writer to drop that item into a story and have the characters affected by it without having to come up with a convoluted origin of the object that the reader may be less accepting of. So we find several most unusual objects in the Twilight Zone. But this time round, we're looking at a most unusual camera. A hotel suite that in this instance serves as a den of crime. The aftermath of a rather minor event to be noted on a police blotter, an insurance claim, perhaps a three-inch box on page 12 of the evening paper. Small addenda to be added to the list of the loot. A camera. A most unimposing addition to the flotsam and jetsam that it came with. Hardly worth mentioning, really, because cameras are cameras. Some expensive, some purchasable at five and dime stores. But this camera, this one's unusual. Because in just a moment, we'll watch it inject itself into the destinies of three people. It happens to be a fact that the pictures that it takes can only be developed in the Twilight Zone. First broadcast on the 16th of December, 1960. Written by Rod Serling and directed by John Rich. So as Serling intros go, it's a pretty lightweight one, but 
at the end of the day, it's a pretty lightweight episode, and we can see from the opening so far, the introduction to the characters, that this is one of those Twilight Zones, the comedy ones. It's often the subject of debate. The comedy episodes are often dismissed wholesale by Twilight Zone fans. I think the thing I like about the intro, though, is that it's one of the few directorial flourishes in the episode. Sailing stands in front of a mirror, and then in it, frozen as if in a photograph, we see our two characters, Chester and Paula, and the man directing that scene is John Rich. In The Twilight Zone Companion, Mark Zickery describes the episode as being limply directed by Rich, and we'll see if we agree with that as we go on. What is kind of interesting, though, is that he only directed two episodes of The Twilight Zone, the other is a kind of stopwatch, which is the episode where a man takes possession of a stopwatch that can stop time. So he directed these two episodes about everyday items having magical abilities. Now I can't find anything to support them thinking when stopwatch came about, let's get the guy who did the camera episode, but you never know. John Rich is one of our hard-working directors of the time. His first IMDb credit is in 1951 and his last is in 1999 so he was directing for the best part of 50 years which is pretty good going and although he did bounce around from show to show he would often direct many many episodes of a particular show for example he did 41 episodes of the Dick Van Dyke show and 81 episodes of All in the Family and 43 episodes of Benson in the 80s, so, so he was certainly a hard worker, and we only lost him quite recently, in 2012, at the age of 86. And we'll come back to him later, and see whether we agree with Mark Zickery's assessment of his Twilight Zone debut. A most unusual camera was originally intended to be a fair season episode, and in it, our leading Manchester who's a crook, had just pulled a heist with his female accomplice, Paula, and they're complaining that this haul that they've stolen from a curio shop isn't really worth anything. Amongst this haul is an antique camera. Chester tests it out by taking a picture of Paula, and then he puts it down without really giving it a second thought. But then something unusual happens. Nice and so clear, Chet. Can you imagine that? No flash bulbs or anything, and look how clear it is. What's the matter with you? What's the matter with me? Get over there by the mirror. What? Go on, go look at yourself in the mirror. Are you missing a couple of buttons? You go ahead and look. So, what's to see? Now look at the picture. So there I am standing by the window wearing a fur coat. Chet. What am I doing wearing a fur coat? I wasn't wearing a fur coat when you took that picture. I don't even own a fur coat. I get it. I get it. Camera's strictly for laughs. Strictly for laughs. It's a gag camera. What do you mean? Look, look. They've already got the pictures developed inside. The negatives have got pictures on them. All this does is take the faces. What? You know, like at a carnival. 
When you stand back at that crazy cardboard thing, you know, fat lady, guy driving a car, sailor, you know. Well, that's what this is. That's not bad. That's pretty clever. When Chester looks at the picture from the camera, he sees that Paula is wearing a fair coat, a coat that she isn't actually wearing in their present situation. So Chester thinks that it's some sort of joke camera. Now, part of the heist was a metallic chest, and when Chester opens that, inside is the same fair coat that Paula was wearing in the picture. So somehow the camera has predicted the future. So before we get into the story, let's take a look at our two main characters, Chester and Paula. Strangely enough, both of them got their parts from chance meetings with Rod Serling. Fred Clark plays Chester and he's described as cornering the market for this sort of grumpy hangdog you know, 40s, 50s guy. He met Rod Sailing in a restaurant and from then on he got cast in this episode. Now I'll talk about their performances a bit more later on, but Jean Carson, she played Paula. Nothing particularly sticks out to me from her resume, but there's probably a very good reason for that. Her stock in trade was these quirky little characters and she very much used that very distinctive voice of hers. She was a supporting actor, she wasn't a leading lady as such. But she met Rod Serling at a party and she said, I was cast for the Twilight Zone because Rod Serling wanted me to play the lead in one of his scripts. There was a party near Malibu. I was surprised to learn that he had seen me perform on the stage in Mrs. Gibbon's Boys. I told him I was definitely interested being new to the West Coast. The producer phoned me almost two years later telling me Rod was fulfilling his promise. And she said about just working supporting roles in shows like The Twilight Zone, that doesn't bother me. With my crazy voice, I could never be a leading lady, so why should I kill myself trying? Besides, as a second tomato, I have the reward of always being busy. I don't have to sit around for months waiting for the few big jobs that exist. I know stars who absolutely go out of their minds from this inactivity. So she had a very healthy attitude towards it. And again, we'll talk a bit more about their performances later on. What are you doing? Come on back to bed. Still with that? Shut up. So what do you care? Mommy, let her go by, huh? So what do you care? So it's a crazy camera, so it takes dopey pictures that really aren't there. Yeah, it takes dopey pictures. Dopey pictures like things that haven't happened yet, but they do happen. So what's to do, Chet? One lousy, kooky picture and you get insomnia. So it's a camera, that's all here. I'll show you. There. See? Any lightning? Drop it, why don't you? Let it go, forget it. How can I forget it? So another picture from the camera shows that Paula's brother, Woodward, who's supposed to be in jail, is framed in the doorway of their room and unsurprisingly shortly afterwards he turns up Woodward Hi Paula, hi Chet I didn't want to wake you so I jimmy the door open I broke out, me and another guy hitting a laundry truck <laughs> It's nice, huh? I didn't think you'd mind if I stay with you for a few days Well you don't, do you? I was thinking if I was around you two wouldn't fight so much You're still all the time fighting? 
What's this, Chet? <laughs> you like that? There I am, standing by this very door, wearing the clothes I got on. How about that? I tell you, science is wonderful. To be able to take a picture of it. Wait a minute. Wait a minute! Like, uh... How come? We've already met Adam Williams, who played Woodward, Paula's brother in The Twilight Zone, when he played the sailor who gets picked up by Nan Adams in The Hitchhiker, and Adam Williams was one of our jobbing actors who also tried his hand at writing a few episodes of television in the 60s. His most high-profile project as an actor was in the Hitchcock movie North by Northwest, but also interesting is he was in a show called The Rifleman in the 60s and he wrote an episode of it too, but as I've commented previously on the show, as would often happen at that time, he actually appeared in the show six times but played six different people when he did. So in this he's playing this sort of dopey lug of a brother. He's a criminal, he hasn't really got much in the way of brains and... It's a very broad performance, you know, it is what it is. It's in fitting with the, the broadness of the episode, so I can't really uh, come down on him for that. He's, he's fitting in with what's going on on screen, so it's fine. So by now we've seen what the camera can do, and the question is, what are these two big crooks gonna do with it? How are they gonna turn it to their advantage? And the answer comes when Woodward watches a horse race on TV they decide that they'll go to the racetrack, take a picture of the winning board, so they will see who's going to win the race, and then they'll bet on them. So they go to the track, and a picture tells them that a horse called Tidy 2 is going to win. So that's where they place their bet. Hey, boys and girls, our money goes on Tidy 2. Here, you take care of baby. Tidy two. Come on, number six. Tidy two. Come on, Tidy two. Come on, Tidy two. Come on, horsey. Tidy two. Come on, Tidy two. I won't really dwell on the story too much in this one. It is a very straightforward little tale. You can it almost writes itself to a degree because they have this winning streak at the racetrack and they're back at the hotel with their riches, their money. And this is where the ending comes in, and as endings go. It's uh, quite farcical. Chester and Woodward get into a disagreement and Chester pulls a knife on Woodward. Originally as scripted, Chester was supposed to pull a switchblade, but because it was illegal in most states, the network asked that they use a jackknife or a fixed blade knife. As they struggle, Chester and Woodward fall out of the window of the hotel to their deaths and Paula takes a picture of them laying there in the street. As that picture develops, 
a French waiter who works at the hotel uh, comes into the room to rob them. He knows who they are and he's going to take their money and make off himself. It's a small part, but the waiter called Pierre was actually played by a German actor called Marcel Hilaire, whose life story in itself is quite interesting. He was not French, he was born in Germany in 1908, and he had the name Erwin Ottmar Hiller. When he was young, he appeared on stage in Germany under the name Harry Ferster in order to hide his Jewish heritage from the Nazis but eventually he was imprisoned because of it, but escaped and made his way to America. And while he was in America, he made these quirky little caricature characters his stock in trade. So the picture develops and it shows that Paula too is on the floor with Chester and Woodward having fallen out of the window and she subsequently trips and falls out. But then Pierre looks at the picture again and notices that there are four bodies and as the shot pans to the most unusual camera Pierre too takes a tumble out of the window to his death. Now Mark Zickery's review of this episode in the Twilight Zone Companion is very short, very negative and one of his main points is how did the waiter fall out of the window and I can see what he's saying I, I don't get caught up in it too much to be honest because by this point we know that if the camera sees something it will happen so maybe he falls out of the window from shock or he trips as well you know who knows but it's definitely very clumsily put together and not particularly satisfying overall four people falling out of a window it just seems a very disposable and throwaway conclusion okay so we're at the end now what do we do Let's throw him out the window. You know, thinking back to the story, I mentioned at the beginning, the monkey's paw. What it tells us is that life must have balance. If you try to achieve or gain through magic or cosmic trickery without putting in the right work, then you pay for that gain in other ways. For every gain, there's got to be a cost. In this case, it's hard to know what the intent of the camera is. Did it find its way into their lives as a means to their downfall? Was it there to dish out that very Twilight Zone-esque cosmic justice? Or was it there to give them a chance to do something good with it? Because Chester does say early on that he's going to use it for the benefit of humanity, so was it there to give him a chance? In the story The Monkey's Poor, it, it seems to have been created with malevolent intent. I don't think anyone could have used that and benefited from it. Whereas the camera was possibly there to say, okay, you've got a shot. Let's get yourself back on track, you know, try and use it. If you use the camera in a greedy way, then you'll pay the price. But maybe if they'd have tried to use it in a good way, then they would have got some sort of cosmic reward. But we don't know, because Chester and Paula don't take that shot, so they get their punishment. As I previously mentioned, it's quite a light-hearted episode. It does have that element of dark comedy, I suppose, because everyone ends up dead at the end. And then we have this question, can the Twilight Zone do comedy? Is it meant to be funny? Yeah, I think a most unusual camera is meant to be funny. Is it actually funny? 
Not really. Is it amusing? Sometimes. I mean, Mark Zickery describes it as being limply directed and never going anywhere. I don't disagree with that. I think it is a very flat episode in a lot of ways, very static. There's not much energy to it. But I don't think I'd put it in the Twilight Zone basement with maybe the likes of Mr. Beavis or Mr. Dingle the Strong. There is a very slight charm to the characters of Chester and Paula that makes me have a little bit of appreciation for it. Fred Clark and Jean Carson were very hard-working actors and they both had their niche roles, so I don't think I can dismiss their performances wholesale just for doing what they were good at. The characters they play are despicable and they are irredeemably bad people, but I think maybe because I'm looking through the lens of time, I do enjoy them a little bit. You know, they're doing what they're good at. I enjoy those actors doing their thing rather than enjoying the characters as such. The story itself, it is a very basic one. There is that level of cosmic justice that the Twilight Zone often has. These are bad people and the Twilight Zone deals with them for not only how they lived up until this point, but how they use this gift of the camera. You know, they could have taken that path to use it for good. Maybe it would have ended differently than them lying dead on a pavement. Even the waiter who only has a brief skirmish with the camera ends up getting his punishment too. There was an extra scene in the original script for the show that would have been the owners of the antique shop complaining to a detective about the theft. There was pressure in season two from CBS to keep the cost down and this scene was cut because of that. In Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic by Martin Grams Jr. there is an inference that maybe a lack of budget and a rushed schedule were to blame for this episode not being all that it could be. Rod Serling said, A series can be sustained with top quality writing and acting, but suffers when filmed from economics. It's rare that a show can shoot in more than three days, and it's this too brief shooting schedule that is reflected in the lack of consistency in film shows. This is particularly true in anthologies. When The Twilight Zone came up with a rock on occasion, this was occasionally the net result of sloppy writing, but more often it reflected a lack of time to polish the show properly. It's hard to say whether more time would have made this episode a bit better. It may have just been poorly conceived from the get-go, but overall, while I don't think this episode is a success, I wouldn't say it's worthless. Any lessons that it might be trying to deliver aren't delivered with any level of sophistication. It seems to be saying, don't be a bad person or you will get your just desserts. It's not particularly funny as it was supposed to be, but again, I am often mindful that we are looking at it from a different time. Did people at the time find it perfectly amusing and funny and acceptable because some comedy doesn't translate well through time? And maybe this is one of those things, but unfortunately, looking at it now, I don't really see it as a, a comedy success, if you like. But if it comes up in a Twilight Zone marathon between those landmark episodes, it's the episode where 
Maybe you'll get up and make yourself a cup of tea or a cup of coffee, get a snack, and maybe if you do look over occasionally, it does make you raise the odd smile. Object known as a camera. Vintage uncertain, origin unknown. But for the greedy, the avaricious, the fleet of foot, who can run a four-minute mile so long as they're chasing a fast buck, it makes believe that it's an ally, but it isn't at all. It's a beckoning come-on for a quick walk around the block in the twilight zone. Maybe a bit of a thin episode of the Twilight Zone podcast this time. There didn't seem to be much in the way of trivia and not really much meat to the story. It was a bit of a bit of a lightweight one this time. Last episode, I played some feedback about the trouble with Templeton. And we've had one bit more from a gentleman by the name of Mac. And he said, I just discovered your podcast on iTunes and really enjoyed your commentary on one of my favourite episodes, The Trouble with Templeton. For me, this is a very good episode that could have been great. Templeton's explanation of the situation, i.e. that Laura was acting, is not necessary. I think the story lost some impact by taking the opportunity for interpretation from the audience. Perhaps a visual of the script's front page would suffice. Other than this bit of heavy-handedness, I really like the show, as the performances are excellent. Thanks for hearing me out. I'll be listening in. Great bit of feedback from Mac. Thank you. It's uh, it's funny that the trouble with Templeton seems to be one of the most fed back on shows. And like I said, you know, I really would like to get more opinions on episodes as we go along. So I know I've been playing a bit of um, tennis with my email addresses lately. I've got too many domain names going on, but I'm going to formalize it. Let's keep it nice and simple and let's have it as feedback at the twilightzonepodcast.com if you want to get any thoughts in the form of an email or an mp3 then send it to feedback at the twilightzonepodcast.com and we'll get it on the show so next up we are looking at an episode that some would consider a bit of a classic for the time let's see if we agree it's night of the meek it's a christmas episode unfortunately the timing isn't quite right but that's fine we're getting to that season so Hopefully uh, you'll enjoy it. So Night of the Meek next time on the Twilight Zone podcast. Bye.